You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we welcome Dr. Lerman, who is currently a professor of behavior analysis at the University of Houston Clear Lake. She directs a master's program in behavior analysis and serves as director of the UHCL Center for Autism and Developmental Disabilities. Dr. Lerman has published more than 80 research articles and chapters, served as editor-in-chief for the Journal of of Applied Behavior Analysis and Behavior Analysis in Practice, and has secured more than $2 million in grants and contracts to support her work. Dr. Lerman joins us today to share her experience in educating dentists and police officers about autism to help them serve the autism community. Dorothea, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here today. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited to pick your brain on so many of these subjects. But before we get there, there's, I mean, empowering community stakeholders, especially the ones that you're working with right now, there must have been a reason that drove you to say there's a need here. There's something that I have to be doing to fill this gap and to educate. Where where did that passion come from? Well, I really wish I could say that I led that effort. Um, I have to admit that in both projects, both cases, someone came to me. And the first one was with the police officers was the passion of one of my graduate students. So we have a three-year master's program. And in her very first semester in the program, my student Carly Hinkle approached me and she told me that she had been reading on the internet about a young man with autism. I can't remember what city he was in. And he was just hanging out in a park, minding his own business, playing with a string, uh, as some individuals with autism do. And a police officer who was driving by thought he looked suspicious and strange. So the police officer, and all of this is picked up on this police officer's body cam. It's on the internet. You can just Google and find it. And within five minutes, because I looked at the clock, the video goes and you can and you can see from the very start within one minute of approaching this young man, he had him tackled on the ground. And he actually um, this young man had bruises and had to get surgery on his toe. So what happened was he approached him and started trying to talk to him. And the young man got nervous and started backing away. And it was simply the fact that he backed away from the police officer that caused the police officer to immediately physically restrain him on the ground. And Carly was absolutely horrified. And she said she wanted to make sure this never happened to another person with autism again. And so I said, well, this is something you're really passionate about. I know nothing about this, but I will help take that journey with you. And so Mm -hmm. that's what got us started in that area. And then what got us started training dental students and professionals, as well as medical students, which is what we're doing now, was we were approached by a university-based clinic um, that's amazing. It's, It's one of the few in the country It serves as a medical home. It's interdisciplinary and serves as a medical home for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. 
and they had gotten a grant. Ironically, they don't have a dental program, uh, but they had gotten a grant to create a training for dental students and professionals, as well as to provide behavioral intervention services to patients who were required to be either restrained or sedated to have any kind of work done. And so they partnered with a local dental school and then realized, well, they need a behavior analyst to help them with the behavioral interventions. And so they contacted us. So in both cases, I became very passionate and very interested in the topics, but I am embarrassed to say that that passion didn't, and those ideas didn't directly come from me. It came from me, uh, other people suggesting it to me. Yeah, but at the same time, you, you're you're definitely there to be able to help support Carly in in her mission too, which I think is part of the big piece to this is that we don't know what we don't know, and even what you're talking about with dentists is that we run we have a parent portal where it's just like this parent feedback where they can communicate with one another. But you look at the questions and you start to kind of evaluate what are the big things that parents are concerned about. I think you hit it. I mean, it's it's right there. It's how do I give these normal opportunities that we all go, not that we all want to be at a dentist, but that we get to access and make it so that everybody has that same opportunity, whether you're neurodiverse or if you're neurotypical, whether you have a disability or if you're able to access more environments independently. It's how do we create that more inclusive community? But yeah. I want to go back to the, the police I officer. Say, I, had, I had no idea until we started looking into the, the dental project, the extent of the health disparities mm -hmm. that individuals with developmental disabilities experience. And once I realized that tremendous health disparities, that's what really drove us. Because there are so many families who say that they can't find a medical or dental provider who will provide services without requiring some type of sedation or restraint. And mm -hmm. I may be jumping ahead, but, and we'll get back to the police officers, but what I, what we found in our initial work is that about 50% of the patients whose dental providers were saying they had to be sedated or restrained were absolutely fine with very minimal support. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so we were so alarmed. We we quickly published those data before we were finished because mm -hmm. we were so alarmed that this meant there were a lot of people who are being unnecessarily sedated or restrained. So I just wanted to make sure I got that out there. No, and, and actually, let's stay there because it's honestly one of those things that uh, it, there's some momentum here for us to be able to chat on this piece. But on the dental piece alone, I've seen a, a variety of clients of my own that I know are in pain. I know that what it, it, because of the lack of dental care and their family's hesitance to take them, and it might be because I don't want to go and have to go through sedation. I don't want to go and have to deal with a battle that entire time. But just hearing about it afterwards and, and being able to kind of help support through that. That child, that individual was in so much pain for such a long time. And we all just contributed to, well, it's just part of their behavioral, like we didn't look at that medical piece to it. 
and building that community is is so important. Um, what are what are the components that you look at? I mean, the assumption is well, we have to sedate everybody, and that's the old assumption. What are the pieces that you're actually training a dental office on? I mean, there's so many working operational components. Like, where do you even start? Yeah. Well, we started by looking at the literature, and what we found was that a lot of the interventions that have been evaluated are ones that would be too complex and time-consuming for dentists to implement within the context of routine dental exams. So we said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to start out with what we consider to be what we can call best practice package. That is a set of procedures that we think most dentists should be able to implement. And so in addition to sort of building rapport and making sure before you start that the individual feels comfortable, uh, we, we recommend things like um, providing access to a highly preferred item that they can have throughout the appointment. Often that might be uh, an iPad or something they can watch a movie on or something they can hold or manipulate. Um, something that all dentists are taught, in, that, in fact, the only thing dentists are taught is something called tell, show, do, which is where you explain what you're gonna do, you show them, and then you, then, then you do it. And so we included that because that is something that dentists are taught to do. Praising compliance, right? And giving frequent breaks. And so that's sort of a package we felt that most dentists, so we had dental professionals on our team, and we felt that, and they agreed that most dentists should be able to do without unnecessarily lengthening their appointments. Obviously, they're going to be a little bit longer, but, you know, that's something that should be accommodated for someone. And so mm-hmm. those are the main interventions that we teach dentists to do with the understanding that this isn't going to be effective for every patient. But our research suggested it's effective for 50%, right? Absolutely. And then if they need something more, then they could be referred to a behavior specialist who could do the more intensive things, which typically involve very uh, gradual exposure Mm -hmm. to the steps. And one thing I do want to mention is that we recommend that all dentists, if the patient does become disruptive or resistant, they should back away, right? They shouldn't force anything on the patient because that's just going to make things worse in the future for that patient. Things are, it's just going to be even more aversive for that patient. Yeah. Yeah. But even, even that step, I mean, that's, that's, and a bridge of where treatment has gone over time is just the idea that somebody during a dental procedure still has the ability to assent or withdraw assent during that process is, is pretty important. I mean, it's if I was getting something done in my mouth is that I could voice that. I could say, no, I think I'm, I'm done here. And they'd have to listen to me. They'd have to follow that process. So being able to train on that is so important. So you, you've done this within, it sounds like an amazing partnership with, uh, with a dental clinic. Yes. What's the community feedback? Are you hearing that, you know, this is scalable? It's something that we can help to train to other community partners, or does it take that dedicated office to, to really put it into play? That's a really good question, and we haven't quite gotten to that point. So 
we have de de so we we developed a training at, for dental students because the American Dental Association is now requiring schools that want to be accredited. They have to require they have to include the specialized training and dental students. Dental schools are trying to figure out how to fit it in. And so we developed what we hoped would be a nice, um, efficient, effective training procedure. And just as we were starting to get, uh, put it together, COVID hit. And but we thought, you know what, this is a great opportunity to look at virtual training. So like you and me, we'll be role playing through the computer, right? I'll be presenting information. We'll be role playing through the computer. And so that was our first study that we did with seven dental students. And unfortunately, because of COVID, only one of the dental students could we observe them working with actual patients. We did see generalization, generalized performance, and we did see that our virtual training was effective, at least in terms of them implementing the procedures in role play with someone else in their home. Because again, this was during COVID, so they had to recruit a volunteer, typically a family member. And we used a bug in the ear to coach the pretend patient on what to do so that they could show that they could implement these procedures during a mock dental exam. So we haven't quite gotten where you're at, you know, to the point you're asking about, but what we're trying to do, so when we had to pivot to telehealth, we have a behavior analyst that is that are coaching caregivers to implement the interventions in mock exams with their adult children. And once that's effective, then we're having them go to a community dentist who doesn't know anything about how to implement these things to see if it generalizes. And at least initially what we're finding is it's not generalizing. Shouldn't be surprising, right? So clearly we're either gonna have to do something in those mock exams with the parent to help promote generalization to a community dentist or we're going to have to start training a lot of those community dentists. Now, that's the goal, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. Yeah, I mean, do you see that that biggest piece being um, the ability to establish rapport and trust and, and that carrying over? Or is it a matter of, you know, the skills aren't there? Where's the, where's the biggest gap if you were to make an assumption? I know it's not very behavior analytical to make the assumption, but... If you were to if you were to make that guess, in terms of the community dentists, yeah, and and that transition into, I mean, if you've gone through the virtual and you've given the 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 dental patient the chance to be able to experience this, this is what it's going to feel like, this is what it's going to be, and then you bring it into the community, where's that? Where's the biggest variable that you would that you would say, you know, that's where I need to prioritize. And if I were to coach a practitioner, you know, focus on this first. That is a little hard for me to say. I mean, yeah. clearly <laughs> they are successful with a set of procedures that are being mm -hmm. used in a, during a mock exam. I don't, you know, it's not clear to us what part of those procedures, because it is a package. And it's not clear to us what part of those procedures are most effective. And so that's that's the challenge. Um, and that's, you know, obviously something that we're going to have to study further. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I remember when the American Pediatric Association with their residency program went through and they they started enhancing, you know, we have to incorporate neurodiversity into our residencies. And it sounds like the dental world has followed suit. Um, is, th is there much difference between behavioral skills training and kind of teaching them through the steps that maybe a behavior analyst would be following to be able to learn, to be able to work with these patients? And their typical teaching methodologies that, I mean, you you explained earlier, which is kind of more of the, that observe or learn, observe, do sort of methodology. Um, is there, is the, was it an easy transition for them to kind of be like, oh, okay, I understand. I, I see the validity to this. And there's so much that I could be able to incorporate into my typical practice. The feedback that we've gotten has been very positive. Now, they have expressed concerns about the fact that it'll lengthen the appointments. And so I'm not sure what the implications are for that, for their practice or mm -hmm. for insurance billing. But I think that those are that kind of accommodation, we should be a, a right, right? So we sh insurance companies should cover slightly longer appointments if that's what's needed to accommodate individuals with disabilities. So I, instead of just trying to find things that will fit within the typical 30-minute appointment or whatever it is that they, they allocate to all patients, there needs to be some type of allowances for these longer appointments. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And, but that's that, that's also the hard part. That's where it's kind of, you might have the most well-intentioned dentist out there. And as soon as the community hears that they're great with being able to work through kind of more challenging situations or being patient with their patient and kind of being uh, and giving them more of the time and the expertise is that all of a sudden their panel starts filling up. And unless there is a reimbursement change to what's occurring, it becomes nearly possible to sustain the model. And it's either you build a large network of people that are capable of doing it, which it sounds like you're you're advocating for and you're trying to say, you know, this is great for every resident to learn, every new pediatrician to learn, or something has to change on the, the structure of how we actually reimburse dentists over time. Yeah, the fact of the matter is, is I would have to think that in the long run, it's going to be cheaper for insurance companies if these people do not have to be sedated or restrained. Mm -hmm. So particularly the sedation and the anest extra anesthesia that they maybe wouldn't normally get if you know the, the dentists use these procedures might be a slightly longer appointment, but they don't have to do those more risky, expensive procedures. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that all of these things are so hard to kind of think through. But it, I mean, it, you're taking that first step of empowering people to know that they can, which I think is the, the most important thing is to show yeah. people there's another way. There's a way to be able to work through this. Um, and and you do this not just with the dental community, but it sounds like you've done this with parents in the past. It, it sounds like you've done this with teachers in the past. And the other big component right now, which uh, your student Carly had, had brought to the forefront is with those first responders, which could be police, but it could be fire at times, um, could be uh, EMS. It, it, it's uh, There's a variety of people. But when you're talking about police training, I, I definitely feel that challenge of trying to identify is 
this somebody who's neurodiverse? Is this somebody who is out in out in public and maybe having some other challenges that are that are more temporary that are going on? How important is being able to understand how to approach somebody, identify if there is something that's contributing to their behavior before intervening? Is that one of the steps you're looking at with police officers right now? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. It was our opinion after reading many, many well-publicized cases of encounters between police officers and individuals with disabilities and, and how and why they went wrong, that it was our opinion that what we were planning to train the police officers to do would is something they should do with anybody. So it doesn't matter whether someone is on drugs, right, or someone has schizophrenia or dementia or autism. What we were training them to do, they should do, that we think it would be bent, that it will increase the safety and cooperation of the person that they're working with. And so while we did definitely cover the characteristics of autism, we were not concerned that they could identify people who had autism from other people. We wanted them to be sensitized to anyone who may be acting a little atypically, maybe they have autism. And so maybe they should think about what they had learned mm-hmm. and implement that. Yeah, because and it's funny. Really, yeah, really what we what the the research was showing is that police officers tended to rush in too quickly and expect immediate compliance to their commands. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Maybe an individual having a communication disorder, right? So we basically, and strategies to de-escalate problematic behavior. So an important part of partnering with a group like police officers is to get their buy-in, right? And work collaboratively with them. And so when Carly approached the largest police department in our area about doing this, they said, well, first you have to do a one-year internship with us. (laughs) And of course, Carly was a little bit like, really, I have to do this? But it was the best thing because it allowed her to get to know police officers, their terminology, their culture. It got, it helped her get to know them. She got feedback on what she was planning to teach them. And Mm -hmm. it was really critical to what she ended up teaching them and how well the training went. I'm glad Carly did that. I mean, it it just, we always look to be able to be mindful of everybody's perspective in any sort of intervention that we're doing. And if she is going to help support that community of, of police officers, it, it might, and it sounds like she took this advantage, you know, really understand where their perspective is. Where are their pain points? What is it that they are fearful of before you start to change that dynamic too quickly? Um, but with the with that police officer training and the understanding of, you know, there's so much that's going on, I think that speaks to the that kind of generality of uh, applied behavior analysis in general. It's that no matter who that person is that you're interacting with, these behavioral skills are so important for a police officer to really understand. So is 
is your training that you're doing with them, even though it might be ASD specific, is it more ABA specific than anything else as far as like, hey, here are the concepts? Yes, it, it sure is. So so one thing that we did learn is that if a police, if the if the police officer felt that the individual was be engaging in dangerous behavior, so dangerous to themselves or others, the police officer had to use the procedures that the department were teaching them about managing dangerous behavior. Mm -hmm. So but what we realized is police officers may not be adequately distinguishing between just problematic behavior and dangerous behavior. So that was that mm -hmm. was very important to help them understand by giving them lots of examples of, you know, if that person is screaming or throwing things, but not at anybody, you know, or just flopping on the ground, that's just all problematic behavior. That's not dangerous behavior. So that, that was one important thing. So once that was clear, the distinction. Uh, so basically a lot of the ABA principles are things like, well, first of all, backing up and waiting for problem behavior to stop before you step in and start interacting with the individual, but always staying you know, pretty far from the individual, at least an arm's length away from the individual. When giving instruction, first, of course, building some rapport, talking to the person, introducing yourself. When giving instructions, giving it three different ways. So if you say, where do you live? You ask a question, where do you live? If the person doesn't respond, then ask it three other ways, right? Mm -hmm. Simplifying the language, um, using, you know, if the person doesn't respond to vocal commands, using imitation commands, do this and show them sitting, you know, model sitting down, praising cooperation or compliance. So really a lot of just basic ABA principles that should be effective with any any person. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's it, it kind of attests to those that you're working with right now is that they're seeking that knowledge. These aren't easy things oh, yeah. to go in and learn within a two week training period. I mean, it takes practice. It takes the ability to get in there. And I guess my mind immediately goes is that I I think I was watching on television the other day uh, a metaverse commercial for firefighters going into the line of fire, but utilizing virtual reality and things like that for exposure. Is is there a role for that? Because as much as I could be told, this is what I need to do, this is what this child might do, this is that experience, without somehow being incorporated that where I've practiced these semi-real life situations, is, is there a role for virtual reality to be able to help these departments over time? I think that's an interesting idea. You know, it's a little complicated to program in a virtual reality platform. And actually, so what was really great is all many police departments, many states require crisis intervention team training of all cadets and police officers. And in fact, uh, in Texas, it's a 40-hour training. And uh -huh. so Carly embedded her training within that, and that training already uses like role plays. So actors come in, and they might pretend to be someone with schizophrenia or someone with Alzheimer's. And, you know, they kind of role play, and, and, and they get feedback from a trainer. So this hands-on training is something that police officers in surveys say they really want. 
Mm-hmm. And this is something that a lot of the CIT trainings do and incorporate. And so that made it really easy for Carly to incorporate that type of training in as well. I see the benefits of the virtual reality training, but, you know, it might be easier and less costly to just have people who are pretending to be to be people with autism and other types of individuals rather than trying to create a virtual training platform where you have to program in responses based on your response. Now, I'm not a tech person, so it might be the case (laughs) that there could be a trainer off to the side who's quickly telling the program, now do this, now do that. Mm -hmm. And so I I agree that could be a possibility. And in fact, most of the big ASD trainings for police officers right now are web-based trainings. But they're they're totally based on knowledge, not performance. And uh, quite frankly, we just didn't think they really uh, did a good job. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, I think, in all walks of life, even when you look at the the behavior analytic field is that, you know, you can get all you can from a course, but it's your field work supervision supporting it that completes the package. So, I mean, it's going to be the same for police officers trying to learn the whole behavior analytic curriculum in, in 40 hours. I mean, not really, but that's what it probably yeah, feels so, like to them. So, <laughs> all, so all cadets and police officers have to do an initial 40 hour CIT training And then they do annual refreshers that are eight hours. So theoretically, one could make sure that at least once a year, these police officers get a refresher in the Mm -hmm. procedures. The other thing that Carly found is and developed was a little, what we call a text prompt. So it's like a little card, a little laminated card that very uh, succinctly had the steps that a police officer should take when they encounter someone in the field and they want, they believe they might have autism or something else, or, and they want to use those steps. And we, we kind of envision that it could be a card that they could have, that they could just sort of pull out and reference when they're out in the field. Yeah. So, I mean, what is, when, when Carly went through this, and maybe this wasn't one of her questions, but I've heard it from police officers is that they don't know facts about an individual that they don't know. So there is a role for, self-advocacy in some ways. There's a role for parental advocacy or community stakeholder advocacy, whether that's um, somebody who knows that, you know, I I might have a, a, a an episode in the community where I get very frustrated and people might look at this as me having a, a dangerous situation, but this is just me working through something. I'll never hurt anybody. I'm not going to be able to explain that to a police officer at the time. Is there, are there things that you're recommending to families as far as being that advocate or to self-advocates saying, you know, sometimes nice to have like a little card on you that you can just hand to somebody if that's a possibility or just little steps to empower the police officers to make the right decision at a time where they might not always be able to make the right decision or choose to because of time constraints uh, or self-imposed reasons. Yeah, most definitely. In fact, part of the police officer training was that they should look to see if there was a caregiver or someone nearby and the kinds of information to get from them. Um, And certainly we do recommend that caregivers have those measures, like maybe um, the individual having a card, right, that they could then hand to the police officer that explains what's going on. 
Um, we haven't worked as much with families in terms of encounters with police officers as we have with the police officers themselves. Uh, but some of the things that we have done for families that are interested are teaching children with autism how to recognize someone who is a police officer and to cooperate with their commands and questions. Yeah. yeah. And I would imagine that sensory issues play a role, not just with the police officers or the dental situations, but almost any high stress environment is that even for me, sensory issues play a role in how I respond. And how are you working through teaching some of these first responders, some of these very critical people about how the sensory feedback that the person could be receiving, it could exacerbate symptoms of what's happening at the moment. Is that a big piece of this as well? We, we definitely talk about that. And that's why we, we, we basically tell them to step back, right? So if the person is showing any kind of signs of distress, to step back and wait. Wait for them to calm down and then to quietly approach them, but not too close. And, and try to build some rapport by introducing themselves, trying to then eventually, if they can get some cooperation, taking them to a safe place, a quiet place. Um, so that's that's definitely part of the, the training. Yeah, I'd be fearful um, in, in a first responder situation that I could be contributing to a problem by not being equipped to make those decisions. Where do you suggest that people go that maybe don't aren't part of the the Houston Police Department that has all these access to wonderful resources or the dental program that you all are working with? How do they advocate for, you know, I need this training. My department needs this training. My organization needs this training. Where should they be going right now? Well, um, I'm glad you asked that question. You know, Autism Speaks website, they do have a nice section about uh, police officers and training for police officers as well as information for families. And so I would I would go there to look at, they've got some resources there as well. In terms of the, the dental and medical training, we actually have a website with some tra a training video and materials that is aimed, we have three different ones, one for healthcare professionals, one for families, you know, parents and caregivers, and one for home health aides. Now, before I give you the link, I do wanna clarify that this particular website training is focused on vaccine administration because this was a grant we got specifically during COVID when everyone was trying to get the COVID vaccine to help with cooperation and comfort for those administrations. But what we're training and teaching, you can use with any kind of medical procedure. And so that, that web link is www.uhcl.edu forward slash autism dash center forward slash B as in boy, A as in apple, I as an igloo, V as in Victor, A as an apple. And that last word stands for B 
behavior analysis for inclusive vaccine administration. And so people can go to that website and download both a, an associated instructional manual and a video, take a video-based training. And there, again, there's three modules. They should select the one that, that fits them. Well, I appreciate the fact that you guys have been able to build this out um, and just to have the resource as a starting point for so many different people. We'll make sure that we link that as well so that if anybody didn't catch it, that it's there for them to reference. Um, but you also, I mean, you're influential. You're influential within the behavior analytic community. You've done some wonderful research. You have started some research on this subject, which of course means you want people to be able to continue to explore it further. What are yeah. the questions that that you walked out of the research saying, I think I'd love it if somebody took this and, and did eventual research on these two, three things that would help to expand the thought that's going into it? Oh, we need a ton of research and we are we are continuing to do that research. But, you know, first of all, we need to figure out how to scale up what we're doing. So, you know, so far we've we've published two studies with with dental and medical professionals. And in each of those studies, there were seven participants. Right. And so that's not going to cut it. Uh, medical schools, dental schools, they are now being required to include the specialized training. And the question is, is, how are we going to do it effectively but efficiently? How are we going to get that into their existing curricula? So we were really excited. We got a five-year uh, state grant to do this. And so we are working right now with two medical schools and for example, next month, we are going to train 200 medical students and we've been given about an hour and a half. All right. So this is something we're studying is what right now is what is the amount of training that is needed to get some skills so they can perform these skills. Um, and so we've created a video where they're going to be observing someone implementing them and scoring that person's integrity. They're going to do some role play. Um, and so that's something that we're looking at, but that's something that's going to take a lot of studies. And then looking at them actually working with patients, which we're not going to do initially because these are uh, medical students who aren't working with patients yet. Same with the dental work. Right. That needs to be studied, too. And then so it's not just getting into those medical and dental schools into their curricula, but there's also those existing professionals who are already out there practicing. And so we are actually expanding. So I mentioned this vaccine website, but that's actually going to be a, a springboard. We're going to be creating one that's more general for current healthcare professionals where they can go and download instructional materials, and then perhaps join virtual roundtables uh, using very much the ECHO project model. Um, and so, but this all needs to be studied. No, absolutely. And, and the fact that there is the opportunity for CMEs in this in the future 
I think is so important. It, it'll okay. hopefully be able to drive people to get there. So, yeah. um, so Dorothea, where where can people go if they want to see the research that is being done on this and to be able to kind of expand their own thought process to say, you know, are there pieces of this that I should be incorporating into my practice? Do you have um, links to um, your work that that people could be able to access? You know, I could definitely, um, so I do have a couple of articles and I could make those available to your listeners. I mean, even even if it's a matter of knowing which journals to go to or where at the University of Houston, they can kind of read about what sort of research you've conducted so they can start to explore it on their own. Sometimes getting that starting point is just as valuable as the end point of having the article in hand. Right, right. So I, again, I don't have a whole lot um, in a concentrated place, but, you know, there's the three articles we've published in this area, the one with police officers, one with dental students, and one with medical students. And um, Cupsick and Allen in 2019 published a really nice review paper in the Journal of um, Developmental and Physical Disabilities called a review of strategies for um, increasing compliance and comfort with medical and dental procedures for persons with developmental disabilities. So I recommend that review paper as well. And then if you could make my three papers available through a link, maybe, I don't know if you have a, a website for your yeah. podcast. We could definitely help with that. And I, I think also for not just the practitioners that are out there, the dentists, the uh, police officers or the parents, but I think also for the behavior analytic community who's going to be out there and has a chance to be able to help demonstrate some of these techniques, be able to model them, being able to help support during some visits until uh, a dentist feels more and more capable of being able to take on some of those roles independently. All of that, I think, is is extremely valuable. And I'd love for all organizations to be able to understand that, you know, it's easy to be able to apply our science into other domains and to empower others to be able to continue to, to take advantage of it. So I'll definitely link that. And, and Dr. Lerman, I appreciate the effort that you've put into bringing a lot of this to the forefront to be able to talk about these issues, explore better ways to do it, but then also for coming on our podcast. So thank you so much. Well, I've been to, great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting ABS Kids. Dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.